Welcome back to the Broken Home Podcast. First episode of the 2023. Tonight, we are sitting down with Detective Constable Sean Garris. Detective Constable Sean Garris is a member of the Youth Gang Prevention Force. And he's going to sit down with us tonight and we're going to get into some good discussions. How are you doing tonight? I am fantastic. Thank you for having me on the show. No problem. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to pop in and talk with us. So you've been in law enforcement for quite some time now. Can you give us a little bit of your background? Yeah. So yeah, two decades plus a year now. Um, I started off uh, in uh, 31 division uh, for anybody that uh, I guess uh, doesn't know Toronto 31 division is Jan and Finch. And, you know, I guess Jan and Finch has a little bit of a reputation um in ontario if not canada to tell you the truth um but it's uh, a gang impacted neighborhood uh spend the majority of my career there i actually left to go and teach at the toronto police college um spent a brief i'm gonna say yeah a brief less than a year in our transit unit uh and went back to 31 divisions uh, neighborhood unit and then after that i went to the uh, gang prevention unit um, and that's where I am currently. How long have you been in the gang prevention unit for then? Uh, that unit, I think it's, uh, it's going to be on a two plus years now. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's been an interesting go. It's a different approach to kind of gang, um, you know, gangs, uh, you know, back in 2016, then our chief, uh, deputy chief actually, uh, Jim Raymer came to our unit and said, Hey, you know, listen, we want to get, figure out how we get gang members out of gangs. So, uh, my unit ended up going all sorts of places via, via you know, over here in Canada, across Canada. And, uh, and they, they even looked at a lot of projects on the States and try to figure out a way to, to get these kids away with gangs from culture. And we found a project in the Chicago area, the University of Chicago uh, took it upon themselves. There's actually a professor there named Urban Spurgle, uh, took it upon himself to try to mitigate gang violence and, and, and with this project that he thought would be best. So um, he implemented it in this area called Little Villages, little suburb of Chicago. It had a problem with the Latin Kings. Um, Latin Kings tend to be a pretty violent, violent organization in the United States. They have a hierarchy. Um, you know, they meet regularly and uh, they, they cause a lot of uh, chaos. Is Jaden Finch the most impacted area of Toronto by gangs right now? Or is there just communities that are just being overrun left and right around there? Well, I'll tell you, we, uh, I mean, we, we have stats. I can't really go into the stats because they're, they're probably the ones that I know are probably a little bit. Uh, and I wouldn't wouldn't say aged, but they 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 change from from day to day to month to month. Um, but uh, we held thirty town hall me- meetings in some of uh, you know Toronto's most gang impacted and lowest equitable neighborhoods. Um, there's there's quite a few. Like there is like like I said, we hit thirty of these uh, neighborhoods, the ones that we could identify. Um, we had a great response to these these meetings as well. And we, we heard from the community as well when we were there, which was quite amazing. They were able to, they, they wanted to talk. So it was kind of neat. But yeah, um, I wouldn't say the, the city's overrun with gang violence because, um, you know, it's nowhere near anything like Chicago. It has its uh, areas, unfortunately, but, um, you know. Yeah. When you started uh, doing gang prevention, was that one of your number one strategies was to get into these town hall meetings and try and, and, and get in touch with, with the, the community people living in those areas? Well, we wanted to deliver a framework. We wanted to show them what we wanted to do. Right. And we wanted input because when you design something, um, let's, let's take, for example, a toy, right? You want to bring that toy to the people that are going to use it. So they can just, show you how it's used and if they like you can see if they like it if it's if it's compatible and you can you know you know basically you're test testing uh what you have so we brought it to the community we talked to the community and we got their feedback we got a little more than we asked for to tell you the truth because they you know we thought that you know we'd be presenting a uh you know a model and then there'd be a little bit discussion about it but the man the 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 individuals that came forward and 
spoke to us uh, had some pretty good voices. Like they, they had some some things they wanted to talk about to us. For a police officer, you know, uh, you know, majority, like I said, the majority of my background um, is working in in the Jane and Finch area. Uh, the majority of my my career, um, and you know, I, I've arrested these kids that you know have the handguns i've arrested the the kids that are selling drugs i've you know that are immersed in the gang subculture but um to take the time to stop to community members and see how it's affecting them <clears throat> and see what you know what you know their perspective uh, was kind of eye-opening because you know as police officers you, you sometimes you just don't have the time to do that but our unit was able to take the time to do that which was you know valuable to us very valuable oh extremely like communication is key because like to be honest, police can implement anything they want, but if the community doesn't have their this if they don't have the support of the community, there's not going to be that 50-50 give and take kind of relationship with it. So that that's that's really awesome that you guys held that town hall and got to hear their primary concerns and, and were able I, I'm guessing you tailored your framework to that in some aspects then? Yeah, of course. And it was it wasn't just one, it was 30. So 30 of these town, uh, actually 29 uh, uh, town hall meetings. So we, we gained so much um, insight. I guess that would be the better word, insight to what was going in the community, what they needed, um, you know, their, the issues that, that they were had to overcome, um, a lot of those things. So, you know, for a police officer to take the time to do that, or a whole unit to take the time to do that is kind of unheard of, uh, especially uh, up here in Canada. And that's the thing, too. We have a lot of California listeners. A lot of our guests are from Los Angeles, Compton, Inglewood area. And the the gang, not only mentality, but the, the, the whole gang structure is it's a whole different world of gangs up that way. And then when you talk about them, like when I talk to them, about, oh, we got gangs here in Canada, they, they kind of get a little bit surprised by that. Like, oh, really? You know, like they... It, it's it comes as a shock i guess to them <laughs> yeah well you know i spent a majority of my athletic career down in the united states and um you know i think there's some of our friends down south don't don't don't, don't travel up here much um and uh, you know I've, I've been asked if we still live in uh, igloos i think that kind of <laughs> <laughs> no um but you know that's just i guess um uh, for the lack of a better word ignorance that you know, it's just because they haven't been up here, you know, and yeah. some of these kids and you're talking about gang members in California, but some of these kids haven't, you know, these gang members haven't left the cities that they live in. They've only seen those places. You know, we have the same thing in Toronto when we talk to the kids in, in our neighborhoods or the people in our neighborhoods. Um, they haven't been out of the city of Toronto. Some of these kids haven't even seen the CN Tower. I had to take one um, kid from my my community who I was, uh, you know, I took to a function downtown that was happening at city hall. Um, I was trying to get him into wrestling and, you know, show him the right way. We went down to city hall and it was, there was a wrestling mat in the, um, you know, just in the, in the big courtyard there. And uh, we went down and watched it and he was telling me, and we went with his family. They, they'd never been downtown, never even seen the same tower, but they had lived there for 20 years. I imagine the same thing is happening in Los Angeles where these kids don't have the opportunities to go and maybe go and see a 49ers game or maybe go and, you know, go and see a, a at the time, Los Angeles Raiders, I guess, but I guess there's a player Las Vegas now. Yeah. 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 That's true. A lot of the kids, they don't leave a four block radius from their home most of their lives. It's, it's kind of shocking when you think about that. Me and you spoke by email there and I gave a little bit yeah. of my background about the area that I grew up in. And yeah. when I was coming up, I, I could never see myself even going any place like going to Toronto. I couldn't see myself ever basically being able to leave my neighborhood. And I, I could just, I feel for the kids that have that mentality when I know exactly how it feels to think that you don't have any options in life. And this is pretty much where you're going to end up being pretty much for the rest of your life in this one area. You hit it right on the nose. You know, it's uh, when you limit somebody's view, um, whether it's purposely or it's not purposely, but when you have a limited view of the world, you don't see what other options you have out there. And, it, you know, sometimes these kids don't want to leave their, their area because they're scared of the collateral damage uh, from gang members. 
uh, or they're maybe a, the rival gang or whatever it is, but they stay in their areas. They don't come out um, and they don't see what they could be doing. And that's why, you know, I'll go back to my project, but we, we, we bring, you know, we bring different mentorship programs. And currently we have a robotics program that's coming into the Jane and Finch area uh, with the Yates program and stuff like that. And these kids are actually, you know, they're seeing stuff that they wouldn't, normally have seen like these businesses are coming in and they're showing us can you imagine um you know some of these kids seeing this for the first time and having the this epiphany like maybe you know what i could be you know earn some money in this field some way somehow right um and that's what i think you know unfortunately you know the the gang subculture we limit the perspective that we have or they they limit their own perspective all about us and them you know, gang members against gang members. Very true. Since you, you've started um, in gang prevention so for over the last two years, are you, do you have any any hope? Are you seeing a change, something something that's coming out of everything that you're doing that kind of gives you hope that you're on the right track and it's just a matter of time before you start affecting more and more people and getting them on that right track? You know, so again, me being in that, that unit for only a little bit i've seen some some great strides like we have about 1800 people and that's not the official number because i don't have it it grow it's grown but about 1800 people enrolled in our our gang referral program and that, those are actually people that are either in a gang or they're at risk of being in a gang um and we try to help them with various uh referrals that, that we do whether it's a job um you know, it's a counseling, um, a training for jobs, uh, you know, you name it, PTSD counseling, because some of these kids have seen a heck of a lot of stuff. Uh, they, may, they might even perpetrated some of it and they still need help. Doesn't, you know, just because they're, you know, they're, we have to reach these kids. We have to make sure they're mentally capable of actually, you know, wanting help too. Do you get any pushback from the kids? Like, say if you actively seek out a young gang member and you try to just chop it up with them, have a quick conversation. Do you get that hesitancy? Like I, I shouldn't be talking to you. Do you, do you get that? And, and if so, how do you break that barrier? Well, you know, when I was working in the neighborhood office, the, the biggest thing was that was the big hurdle is, you know, kind of bridging the gap between police and the community. Cause obviously um, people know uh, that, you know, various communities have, you know, got their back up you know, with the policing community because of historic incidents that may have happened in the United States or here. Um, so it's tough. Wearing the uniform is, is a barrier. Um, but, you know, when you, you're a neighborhood officer, you're immersed in that neighborhood. So you see, you see people in and out every single day. And what ends up happening is because they see you, they start and you have conversations with them. Uh, it starts to break down that barrier a little bit. And it's, it's all about following through on, on you on what you do and what you want to do um but it, yeah it's it is tough when you want to reach a gang member like specifically when they see you uh, in uniform and, and you start offering help um that's why with the engage 416 program we've built neighborhood teams and these neighborhood teams are kind of overseen by uh some folks in my unit and um they're they consist of people with various backgrounds uh, people from the community um, people from faith-based organizations, uh, housing, um, probation and parole, um, people that can actually be, you know, a, that, that are, they're, they're more approachable uh, because, you know, somebody in probation and parole, they're going to be dealing with uh, these kids one-on-one -on -one and they're going to be able to say, well, listen, you know, this group of guys, they're, you know, they're, they've got a program or sorry, they shouldn't say just guys, but we have girls in the office too. Um, they have a program and I think it might help you. And then they can explain our program to them. That's why it's so important for us to actually uh, to have the neighborhood team because it helps us break down those barriers because there is that trust that's, that's there. And, and sometimes that trust can be broken just by something that happens in the media. Um, you know, something down in the States, like is, you know, as, as bad as George Floyd, you know, it be, even that it, it didn't happen up here, you know, there's a mistrust all of a sudden it just, um, comes north of the border and paints every police officer the same way. Yeah. And me and Mark were actually just talking about that is how kids growing up these days, the police are painted in a negative light almost every single day by the media. Have you yourself experienced that? Like had that impact what you're trying to do? 
Well, yeah, I mean, every step of the way that, you know, you, there, there's good and bad stories that come out, but it's, it, it whatever sensational, right, uh, comes out, covered. And the unfortunate thing with this day and age is that when you, when you Google something or if you have an opinion on something, you know, the, the algorithms will keep feeding you like stories. Um, and you're only going to get, so if you have a hate on for police, you're going to get more and more videos or, you know, these talking heads coming at you and just supporting your, you know, your, your beliefs. And, you know, it's a, the, I think the, the term is, um, is it cognitive bias? I think it's cognitive bias where you just, you know, you, you, you just, you don't believe anything outside of that because your belief is substantiated through videos or from the people that you experience. You have a tendency to, to, to keep those people around you. Um, that's why it's so important. You know, critical thinking is kind of the one of the way of the dodo, I think, at, at, at times. And that's that's where I think the community is at risk more so than anything when it comes to that because we, we've started to put ourselves into groups instead of individuals. You know, we're not individuals anymore. Yeah, no, we, we get isolated into echo chambers of our own personal beliefs. And then, like you said, the more the more bullshit that you feed into, the more it's going to come back at you and it's just going to keep filling it with you. Yeah. The, yeah. Social media is a, a gift and a curse at the same mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it, 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 it has its uh, its pluses. But, you know, if we're not cognizant of what's going on, like you've got to remember, like, Back in the day when we were, <laughs> I'm aging myself here, but when Walter Cronkite or, or Dan Rather was on TV, um, they just talked about the facts. Now you've got people that come on the TV shows and they will, you know, come on and, and, and tell you their opinion. And then they'll tell you why they're right. And they'll say, and if you're watching a certain channel and that channel is either left or right winged, you know, uh, if you stick to that channel, I mean, that's all you're going to believe. So it's kind of important upon you or incumbent upon yourself to kind of look at different views in life. I mean, you really can do yourself in if you, if you don't. And, you know, I, I think as police officers, I think that's something we really have to strive to do too, is just, you know, to be, um, I'm trying to think of the word, but um, um, impartial, you know, you yeah. need to have both sides of this of the tracks you can't just take one side john what made you get into law enforcement in the first place um i was a youth counselor uh, in the beginning um i actually in london ontario at this place called um king's detention center it's an open custody facility um I won't, well, it's on King Street. I won't tell you exactly where it is because it's it's, it's kind of hidden, but it's, it's it's a house. Uh, but it's open custody, and they have kids there. I think they had about twelve kids at a time, and these were kids, you know, a phase one kids, which was um, below the age of uh, fifteen. I think that's what it is. I can't remember. It might have changed. Um, and I just really, really, really love like working with these kids because you know when they've got. It, it was open custody, but these kids has a lot of issues in their, in their, in their lives. Um, and, and it's what we call now in the gang prevention, we call them risk factors, but push and pull factors that pull them into criminality or pull them, push them into criminality. And I've always been kind of a, a listener or a, you know, and I, and I, and I like to, to think as well, but you know, when these kids got into crisis, you know, of course I'm a big guy and they'd always kind of, you know, they, the people that work there would kind of force me into the situation. They're thinking that I'm going to go in there and wrestle the guy. Cause that's my background. I'm a wrestler, right? Uh, my dad was a three-time Olympian for Canada. So I'm thinking they're just kind of like, okay, let's send that guy in. He's going to take care of things. Well, I didn't want to touch anybody. I didn't want to roll around the ground with anybody. Um, Cause these are kids really. Um, so I talked to them. I have a tendency to talk to them and, and see what was going on. You know, besides that, I mean, when the kids were freaking out, if they were throwing things, as long as they weren't hurting anybody, I mean, once you got through the throwing and the you know and the, and the punching of the walls or whatever, you know the kids would break down. They they cry and they they just start telling you what's going on in their their lives. And um, you know when that happened, you, I spent time to actually kind of brainstorm with them and, and you know tell them you know that hey, life's not doesn't have to be like that. Um, you become a little bit of a mentor. You become a little bit of a coach. Um, so I really, really, I really love that. And then I went to. <laughs> It's, it wasn't a good paying job, a child and youth worker at the time. I don't know what they pay now, but and so what ended up happening is I went to a full custody uh, facilities right by Fanshawe, still young offenders. And 
Um, really rewarding as well. Same thing, except it was secure custody this time. Um, it was th This institution was privatized. Uh, from there, I went to EMDC. And they had a young offenders program there. So um, the young offenders program was a little different because you could actually sit on a range with these kids. And you'd actually, you'd actually talk to them, engage. Um, and then... It was like less than a year that I was there. They lost their young offender facilities and they went up to, they, they sent the kids up to, to Blue Water. And uh, it was just the adults. And adult jail facilities, uh, detention centers, the one in, in, in one in there, it just houses people. Uh, they, you know, you feed them, you take them out to yard, uh, you make sure they get showered, uh, you make sure other inmates are beating them up or they're not getting killed. That's basically what you did. Uh, so the capacity to actually change somebody's life or affect somebody's life I wasn't there uh, so I was kind of stuck and then I had a friend that said you know let's try policing and I'm like well I guess I, I guess it might be something maybe I could you know operate in a better manner that way um, so I applied not thinking that I was going to get hired to tell you the truth <laughs> I thought <laughs> I maybe okay I'll I'll, I'll 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 what I'll do is I'll go in and and I'll, and I'll get some experience with the interviews because it was horrible out with your interviews at the time and um, I got a phone call as I'm walking through um, Westmount Mall, actually going to the movie theaters that were actually used to be there. But I got the phone call and they said, hey, we'd like to offer you a job as a cadet at the Toronto Police Service. And I'm like, uh. <laughs> 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 I'm thinking, OK, great. Well, I got Now I got to think about moving. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of surprised to me. <laughs> wasn't always something that I wanted to do. I wanted to be a physiotherapist. I had a friend that was a physio. And when I was down in, in school in the States, that's what I, that's what I was gearing my degree towards. So policing became, uh, you know, a, a different, a different avenue. I was able to actually start working various programs in Jane Finch area. I actually operated a, a wrestling program there uh at one of the high schools that actually had uh two gangs um two conflicting games neighborhood games that actually went to school in, in the area uh at that school um but yeah i mean i just had a i had a blast working with the kids for recruitment into the police services like are there still as many cadets or or recruits that are coming in as I mean, is it uh, is it being is it tougher to recruit for police officers? Because, I mean, a lot of people looking in, it's not the easiest job in the world, you know, and it, it seems like it could be a thankless job at times. Uh, you know what I think? If people that want to get in, uh, like they've had that idea to get in, um, you know, for a long time, I think they, you know, and, and it's been their goal. They're they're there. I can tell you, like, there probably has been a drop. Um, I've got asked that question quite a bit. I don't know if you guys know, but the last police officer that was murdered was, um, uh, I coached him at York university. He was my, he was my kid. I coached him for four years. Um, and after seeing something like that, I mean, I don't know how a parent or, you know, an individual would want to get into a profession like this because, you know, one, Greg didn't deserve what happened to him. He didn't even have a chance. That kid was talented. He was a Brazilian jiu-jitsu jiu brown belt. He was a proficient wrestler. Um, had he, um, had he, I guess, had the opportunity to control the situation, he probably could have, um, but it didn't happen. It, you know, it was a cowardice act that happened. And, and uh, you know, how can you prepare for that? The officer who died yesterday in the morning had just passed his probation. He'd been on the job a little less than a year. He'd passed his 10-month probation, had been notified by his superiors that he was free to work independently as of yesterday, and that is exactly what he did at the time when he was gunned down and killed in a rural area here, not far from where we are. The initial reports from police said that, uh, that there was a fleeing vehicle, a pickup truck, uh, but police later said that this officer officer was responding to a vehicle in a ditch, that he approached the vehicle and then was gunned down, open fire, uh, that he did not have a chance to return fire. That's according to the OPP commissioner. And that's happening more and more. Um, you know, we had uh, Andrew uh, Hong, who was, you know, with the Toronto Police Service, who was murdered, you know, while he was having lunch. So, yeah, I think that there's going to be a, a little bit of pushback. I don't think people are going to want to get in this profession. And then, you know, if, if something's not done with, with bail reform, 
I'm going to just say it. I mean, it's going to happen again. Yeah. Um, I don't know if bail reform, you know, what type of bail reform is the answer. Um, but it's, it's, it's scary because I, I don't see an end to it. You know, I, I'm hoping the politicians, you know, pull up their socks and do something about it. But, um, you know, it's this whole year has been a, uh, hor- horrible for Ontario, even Canadian. Um, yeah, I haven't seen anything like this in, in the 20 years that I've spent with the service um, to go to that many funerals in one year. And then the recruiting, like you said, you know, I've got, I've got a, there's a kid that, that, um, that did some work with us up at the, at the integrated gang prevention task force. And she's a cadet now. And, you know, I, I think about her now. I'm like, you know, like, is she going to be okay? Right. Any officer, I guess, but you know, it's just, it's for me, it's like, man, this job is, uh, it's been cool for me. I've really enjoyed it. You know, and I've been, I guess I've been in a lot of situations where, you know, something like that could have happened to me, but you know, you, as we, as we are, we never think that things like that are going to happen to us, but th- it does. I just, I just think it's, it's, it's going to be tough to, to find quality candidates, you know, coming into our uh, profession with cutbacks, defunding the police, um, you know, with defunding the police, it's been a popular narrative that's been pushed and, and politicians have, have, have followed through, but with anything you got to think about that is, is what, what happens when, when that occurs, what is the lasting or what is, what, you know, what is the, the cause and the effect? You know, I, I always talk on my podcast or my live stream. I say, you know what, I mean, think about traffic, right? Let's say you have a city that's got traffic issues and all of a sudden we take all the traffic officers out and we're not going to enforce more traffic laws. What do you think is going to happen? Oh, it's going to be a shit show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's the same thing. If you're going to take away police officers from, you know, um, a city and you're going to limit their capacity and ways to operate, you're going to have some issues. And, you know, and, and I don't think people think about the long-term uh, effect, which is unfortunate because I think when you're doing, when you're an- analyzing data, you really need to look at those things. Was Toronto hit with that defund the police? Oh yeah. Well, I, I guess mean- the defend the police movement occupied, um, I guess our, the street that's in front of um, our headquarters for a while, actually. So, yeah. And I think that, I think politicians did um listen but then you know uh, this year i think our mayor uh, made the decision to to bring back funding and i know people that aren't, aren't happy with it but you know there are issues that have been been raised uh legitimate issues that have been raised and why that the service needs money like that and uh, you know not all that money goes into salary there's, there's going to be money that actually has been allocated for our unit which is which is amazing because our unit um, you know, involves a community and it's actually where we can become more effective as police officers when we're working with a team from the community. We're looking to go citywide after, after a bit, uh, in March, hopefully. Um, and if that's the case, you know, our numbers will go up and, and, and we'll be helping the city in a different capacity. Were there any solutions coming in rather than them just saying defund, defund? Was anyone offering up solutions or any strategies, anything like that to put it in a positive way? You know, I, I wasn't part of those conversations uh, at the time. I was just in the, in the neighborhood. You know, I, if, if there was solutions, I, were, I, I didn't hear about them, um, unfortunately. You know, and I would love to hear them. You know, kind of what, you know, what we're doing is is a solution. I mean, we're, we're involving the community. We're not, you know, because the community's there, because the community's involved, they, they, they get to help themselves. And it's not like we're there you know, and, and with a 20 man unit, my unit's only three people plus a supervisor. We're funded by the proceeds of crime grant. So, you know, a lot of the funding comes from the, go- the government itself. Um, but, um, you know, the, the solution wise, I, I think, you know, when we start giving this back, because the idea is actually to give this program to the community, give it back to them so that they can operate it without us. And we can just kind of oversee things. And that way we're not, this, the city's not spending money on officers in those, uh, those, you know, in that office, um, you know, uh, wasting money, some people would say. Teach a man to fish kind of thing, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. 
there's going to be a lot of people that don't know what Engage 416 is. We got a lot of United States viewers. Can you break yeah. it down for them? Yeah, well, Engage 416, if they want to check it out, we have a website. It's um, the engage416.ca. It's not .com, so it's .ca. Um, but basically, it's 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 a program that uh, we have neighborhood teams. We build these neighborhood teams like the, from the people with backgrounds that I, I mentioned before. Um, what they do is they go into the community and, um, you know, they're already immersed in the community. So they can identify kids that are at, at risk or uh, already in gangs and they can get them the help they need through our referral program um, or our mentorship program. We offer, you know, we offer quite a bit. Um, we're actually gotten so popular that our defense councils actually are actually, you know, trying to implement some of that with, you know, in their programming as well. So, you know, just when it put a part of their part of their releases here, we want you to kind of take a look at engage 416. But mind you, like our program is voluntary. It's not, we don't force it upon anybody either. It's, it's, if you want help, you, you got to say, Hey, I need help. And, you know, can we, you know, can I get help from you? We have some people that tell us to go pound salt too, because they're they're too immersed in the gang subculture. Um, you know, those people. You know, you just got to keep knocking on their doors and saying, "Hey, you know, um, let me know when it's time." Basically, what our, our teams do, and then what we do is we will knock on doors and, and offer our assistance. And how often do you get approached by by youth coming saying, "I want to get out. I don't see how I can, but I need to get out." You know what? It's a uh... I don't know how often it, it, it's regular. It's not a, uh, it's not that every single day though, but it's regular and you, you'll get somebody or a mom or, you know, uh, you know, what can I do? I, I've got this problem or, uh, and of course we, we, we offer the, the counseling, we offer them uh, family counseling as well. Um, and again, these are like, they're not our Toronto police counselors. These are people from the neighborhood, people from the, you know, the community that are already, you know, in, involved in practices and stuff like that, that, that help out. But it, I, I see it is working because, you know, I've, I've, you know, as we're in the office and sometimes when we're talking about a particular case, there's a kid that, you know, there are a kid, one or two kids that come through um, that I recognize the name from just from where I, where I worked. And I'm like, yes, you know, it's, it's kind of a, you know, a, a silent yes, because I'm like, this kid is looking to get out, right? Another kid that I had coached, <laughs> just so two kids this this year. So the one from York University was murdered, who was a police officer. But there was another kid that that uh, was on my wrestling team at at at, um, at, at the high school that I, I won't say the name, but the high school that yeah. I coached that, uh, and he was murdered actually as a result of the gang subculture um, this year too. So two murders um, that occurred, and you know. It, so when I have somebody like that that I know that I've dealt with in the community and they're reaching out for help, it's kind of I kind of celebrate because I know sometimes the other the only alternative is going to prison and screwing your life life up for the rest of your life, uh, or being shot or killed and mur or murdered by uh, you know or collateral damage. Uh, so it's kind of you know when you, when I do hear the names coming through, it's it's like yes, you know that's great that kids kids that kids on the right path now let's help them what is the age that you're seeing like the like these kids getting integrated into these gangs what what's the age starting at <sighs> you know we this is where the the town hall meetings really kind came into the to uh, valuable resources to us the insights talking to uh, a, a gang member that he would recruit at very young ages you know at, at uh, elementary school and he would look for kids that were alone in the neighborhood kids that um you know were, were walking home alone were kids with that didn't didn't have friends um you know they would target those individual kids and you know it would be simple by giving them money business it's a simple practice reciprocity right you give somebody something they feel indebted to give you something back um so when these kids are getting you know, $20, here's $20, go and spend it on something or 10 bucks or whatever it is. Um, and then all they are asked to do is watch out for the police or, you know, um, you know, uh, hold these drugs while I, and they wouldn't tell them their drugs. I don't think, uh, you know, uh, hold these drugs while I go and do this deal or hold my cash where I'm doing this deal. I mean, I've seen drug dealers when I've done surveillance, you know, where they, you know, they're about to do a deal and they'll hand off their food to, 
this young kid is probably no more than six years eight of age. And then he walks around the corner, does his deal and comes back and takes his food and then give hands off money to him. where the recruiting started is that young. Right. And you got to think too, is, you know, there, there's various risk factors that come into play to make these gang members, you know, and it's one of the big things that everybody comes back to. And it's not just the only one is this poor parental supervision in a lot of these areas. Um, you know, especially in the impoverished areas that some of these gangs operate in, um, the parents, they're single parents there, and they can't, you know, supervise their children when they're out working. Or, you know, they're, the parents are alcoholics or drug addicts, but the, the family isn't functioning very well. Well, the family is the first, you know, uh, social control mechanism. If it's not there, where do you... Where do you learn your boundaries? Where do you learn your, where do you get structure in your life? It's not there. The next place is school. And I can tell you from working in these areas, these schools, you know, I've seen a lot of teachers just walk into the schools and have given up. So when you, when, when the two social control mechanisms that aren't there anymore, um, you know, or, or, or aren't functioning as well, aren't there, um, the kids go to the streets and they, they learn structure and, and, um, uh, you know, and their boundaries there, they look for boundaries. And, you know, it happens to these kids on a, on a bigger level where, where, you know, okay, well, you know, I got to go to work. You got to go take care of your, your your brother and sister. Well, that kid's probably only, you know, eight years old, you know, and he's got to take care of a three-year-old or whatever. And then, you know, and, and it sounds far-fetched, but I ain't lying. Um, oh, yeah. I, I've seen it myself. Yeah. So it's 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 scary uh, for for these kids to, to, to grow up in that environment where they don't have that guidance, but where else did they turn to, you know, and the streets become educators. I was talking to a guy by the name of Casey Diaz. He's a Los Angeles gang member. And he wrote a book called a shock. He was saying, you know, he got involved, same thing. He got involved in the gang subculture, but then once he got into it, he got hooked because it, get, it became fun to him. Right. So they get you in at first because they want, you know, the belong wanting and belonging. And now I have people that care about me or they, I think they care about me. And then stuff becomes fun and scary at the, time, at the same time. And is this where you're going to be staying from, uh, from this point on in your career? Are you just, are you sticking with gang prevention? Are you in it to win it for this? I want to be somewhere where I'm effective. Uh, I really do like helping kids. I got about nine years left. Maybe I, I might be able to retire early and, and do something. I have a passion. You know, I coach as well. I think that's where my, my, uh, where I belong. Um, but with policing, you know, as long as there's um, the right people in place in a, in a, in a unit like mine uh, and they have the same and same goal, I'll be there for a long time um, because I, I believe in this one, you know, I, uh, you know, I worked in, like I said, in the streets before, right was seizing these firearms from these kids, taking the drugs off these kids and, and stopping them from selling all these things. Suppression works, but it's only for a little bit. They go to jail and then they come right back out. Um, they, they learn when they're in jail, they just learn how to be better criminals or they recruit more gang members. And that's just not me talking. There's data on that as well. I mean, you talk to, and I'm sure you guys have talked to gang members, the same thing. You know, it's just, it's a, it's a spot where, you know, the gang culture or criminality, criminal culture actually thrives. So it's not the best place for them. It's great temporarily to, because you can quell some of the violence on the street. But I think we got to start looking at treating the wound because, you know, we treat the symptoms all the time. But when we treat the wound, you know, we start probably making a little bit more progress. You've got to treat that wound instead, instead of just cutting the head off of it. It's the cutting the head off don't work because five more is going to show up. Yeah. Well, and that's the, so that's the intervention part, you know, of our, our program and the prevention part. We have a, we have this amazing um, team of guys up in our neighborhood office in 31 that I, I actually uh, worked with and uh, we implemented this project. It's called um, Project Safe Play. And so this community, Shoreham community, um, when I was working in the neighborhood unit as well, or even in the transit, you know, when I was there, there, they were scared to come out of their, their, um, they're build, the buildings that they live in. They live, so it's a, it's a townhouse complex yep. plagued by up near Driftwood. Uh, if you guys have heard of the Driftwood Crips. So it's got, a, it's got its rep, reputation up there and it's, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of gunplay up there and, you know, a lot of gangs hanging out there. 
so the the people that live there, the people that love the community, that you know, that they end up being scared to use the park out there in the in the courtyard, uh, the, the splash pad that's there that's never been used. So we had the idea of actually, you know, putting officers in there for you know two hours at a time just to hang out and, and, and be with the community. We did that, and we were able to, um, you know, bring in other, um, you know people as well like grassroots agencies faith-based organizations businesses you know to support the community and it, and it grew into something where we you know they they're doing it now three times three times a week in the summer for two hours each and it's a time when the community actually comes out and they you know i've never seen this community and again i've worked in this this neighborhood for quite some time right majority of my career and uh, i've never seen this community like this before where they're all out you know the people are out there they're having fun the kids are laughing and they're enjoying themselves. We had the Brampton Batman come in with a Batmobile. We had Star Wars 50, 100 or 501st Legion come in there. Um, you know, stuff that these kids would have never, never really had if hadn't we started this program. But the cool thing about it is, you know, these the stats on the gang violence that 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 we were able to 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 find out afterwards after the program has been there for a year. Um, you know, we were able to mitigate gang violence uh, in that area 30%, which is a huge number, huge number. And that stat comes from a, so it wasn't, you know, I, I don't, I didn't look at the data, but it was a, a sergeant of mine that was in charge of our neighborhood office at the time. He's a staff sergeant now, but Dave Haynes, um, he, uh, he was, he was talked about that stat 30%. And you can imagine how the community feels as well. In regards to that so this is you know we talked we'll, we'll circle back to the defund the police uh, narrative there you know when the politicians were speaking about defunding the police they were like no we want the police so a uh councillor city councillor came into that area and uh the community members came in and they they surrounded them with with placards saying you know you know we want more police this is a this is a community that is impacted by um, gang violence that uh, you know doesn't share that narrative. Uh, these are the people that matter. The problem with you know um, politicians is they don't schedule some of the meetings, you know, on issues at the proper times or at the right spots. Because again, in our town hall meetings, what we discovered is that you know those meetings were hard to for the people in the community to get to because they had they're working a job, they had kids at home. They didn't have the time to go downtown to, to you know defend the the police whether they were you know because they were in the school for SR, the SRO program or for defunding the police they weren't able to speak up. Um, but you know when the politicians came to their neighborhood and they saw the value in the police being there they were they were like you know what you know you you need to change your your narrative because what we want is we want the police because the police keep us safe. Those are the voices that aren't being heard. The the voices of you know, activists, I'm going to probably say there's there's a majority of activists that don't live in some of these communities and don't speak for these communities. Now, mind you, there, there are some, right? But the loudest, the loudest voice, the squeaky voice, you know, or it was the old saying, squeaky bill gets the oil, right? Um, so I, but it's not the majority. That I, and that's my personal opinion from the people that I talked to the, and the information that I got from our, our town hall meetings. Yeah, no, I, you see it on the on the news all the time. There's always that one that one actor or somebody that has no business speaking on the, but they're the loudest voice about it. It's always yeah. like that. <laughs> What's your opinion on on getting kids into sports to keep them off the streets? I like to me, I think that was like the number one thing. As soon as I got into mixed martial arts, my whole focus changed. Everything about me changed. And I, I I think keeping kids off the streets with sports is probably one of the easiest things to do for parents. But I know that's not available to all these parents. At the same time, there's a lot of communities that don't have the resources to implement them. But for those that do have that ability, what is your opinion on that? You know, one of the, again, I'll go back to those, those uh, town halls. One of the, the statements that came out of that is that, you know, the community members said, we're not underserved, we're poorly served. And that statement, when they explained it, was like, you know, when we have a program that's in there, it doesn't last. There's no consistency. And it could range from things like volunteers, 
you know, volunteers are scared to come into the community because of the reputation that Jane and Finch has. Uh, I'm just using that as an example. I'm not saying that that's the, that's, that's the occurrence, but, you know, because of the, you know, the way the media has painted that people from outside are scared to kind of come in or, or, you know, walk around the community. And, and, and it goes with sports. So sports, you know, um, some programs get left out uh, because, you know, don't want to spend time there. You know, the coaches, you know, don't want to go into the community or they don't want to spend the majority of time that's needed there for consistency program. Um, I think it's the most, one of the most important things you can do for a child, you know, to inspire and believe in themselves. Cause that's what a coaching coach's job is. You know, you are there not to win games. You are to build the person's character. Uh, you're not there to, 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 you know, to pad your resume. You're there to make the individual a better person. Uh, through sports where it showed them that they can overcome obstacles, you know, uh, whether it's physical or mental. Um, and that's, that's what's missing in some of these communities, like you said, but a lot of the kids respond to those, you know, those coaches, those are the ones that have success. You know, they, they you know, they, they, because they believe not that just that, that they're the, the father figure, the, you know, that surrogate father, but it's because the, the coaches have taken the time to believe in these kids and to show them that, you know, what's out there, um, you know, when, when we miss that, um, you know, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. The problem is, again, you know, you've got people in the community that have two to three jobs and they can't volunteer. You know, I might be, you know, maybe I'm living in the community. Maybe I went to school, you know, to, to the States for football and, you know, I want to start a football program, but I got to work three jobs because my kids got to go. I got to feed my kids. Right. Uh, so it's, it's, there's all sorts of issues that come into play to getting these, these programs to work, to function and to have the right people involved. Cause there are people that are there in the community too. Uh, and this, you know, and they're, they're, they're only there for them, you know, themselves and pad their own resumes and, and, you know, get the funding that they want because it funds them in, in a different way, not the community. Taking it back a bit, have you noticed an uptick in guns on the street in the past couple of years? You know what? I, I think our stats have shown um, that there's been more shootings. I don't know about the number of guns. I don't know that, that officially. I don't know that. I know that uh, the majority of our guns that come, that we seize from criminal uh, instances, um, there was a deputy chief that we had last year and he quoted in a meeting with, uh, uh, you know, parliament and on gang violence. And he quoted this stat was saying that 86% of the firearms that we see is criminal in, in criminal matters are from the United States of America. So we're getting a lot more from the United States. I can tell you that much. Um, but as for the, the numbers, I don't know, but I know that the, you know, the shootings have gone up consistently since carding has just stopped. And I, that would, I think Ari Goldstein had mentioned that on the news. That's not me saying that myself, but that was Ari Goldstein saying that. And I think he had stats that he, he kind of looked at. And Ari Goldstein is a lawyer from the defense council here in London. I might know it wrong. Uh, it might not be him. I must, I might be misquoting him, but I know it was a defense council here in, in Toronto. That's really outspoken. Cause up here in Thunder Bay, it mm -hmm. was pretty much unheard of to even hear about a handgun being used in a crime up until past two, three years ago. Like that's when you first started hearing it. Now we've had 15 homicides last year and the majority is gun violence. It's it's or kids just getting shot. It, but it, it's just been this huge uptick in gun violence up here. And it seems like it's originating from gangs from the GTA area coming up here to slang their drugs getting busted up here the courts revolve them out tell them not to come back you read that dude's name in the paper three weeks later same guy kind of a thing you know that's something that yeah. has to change right there well and you know there's an article that I, I usually quote I can't remember the article's name but it was a uh, it was talking about how the GTA gang members are, are finding smaller communities to push their drugs uh, to push their their guns to make sales right here and there, and they do it because it's it's easier to do because you don't have a huge police presence. 
and it's easier there because you get working class people that might you know uh, might fall victim to the you know the addiction usually drugs you know that that they're pushing are laced with something you know that's more addictive and, you know i think we're seeing more and more of fentanyl deaths overdoses because of that and that's why we as police carry narcon narcon yeah um because of those overdoses right so i mean yeah it's the the unfortunate thing is it's harder to operate within toronto because police presence one but also territorial you know territory becomes huge and if i go and start selling my stuff and it does somebody else's territory i'm gonna get murdered so why don't i go to a small community where i'm not gonna be um you know seen or heard of by you know by the police um or rival gang members i can just kind of operate on my own set up shop and make hundreds and hundreds of dollars right yeah fentanyl has become a major issue up here i imagine it's compounded with the population because of down in toronto we got around a hundred thousand up here and we got probably about 20 methadone clinics too for that population it's just it's non-stop non-stop and you hear about it all the time yeah well i mean in london ontario what was it like i can't remember that what are they two hundred thousand people i grew up in that that area and then you know like I, i don't think it's been until recently and i actually lived you know, in a um, right behind one of the low income area, not a lot of problems happening there when I was growing up. I used to hop the fence and go into the, the low income area, and, and uh, you know, you never have an issue. And, and now, from my understanding, a lot more drug trafficking in that area, and you know, the police are called there a little more. Um, there's been firearms, you know, in London, that, which is kind of you know, when I left 20 years ago, um, you know, to hear about a shooting in Toronto or sort of in London was kind of like, what are you kidding mm-hmm. me? probably not hearing from friends then that stuff still happening down there like it's crazy yeah absolutely yeah. for firearm training it, like is there like mandatory every so often police officers are going in for like mandatory retraining firearms things like that yeah so i mean i, I used to teach firearms at the toronto police college we'd have uh, you have to qualify in your, your use of force options once a year. I mean, you can come in um, as many times as you like if you want more practice on it. Um, you know, to become more proficient on, on your farm. Uh, some people are pretty proficient. Some people aren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it's 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 only mandatory by the province uh, once a year. I had seen that you had uh, cornered uh, in the UFC. Uh, what <laughs> fighter did you corner for? Uh, Claude Patrick. So when I first came up to Toronto and started doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, uh, Claude would come into a club uh, all the time. He started to, to get better. And, you know, of course, he he tapped into me for my wrestling. He always asked questions about my wrestling. So he asked me to, to train him for bits. We trained him. And then I spent time in his corner at the UFC. And That's awesome. Had a blast. 129, which was at the Sky Dome. You know, um, it, it was pretty good. I got to watch. Uh, you got to another- watch Mark Hominick then, right? Yeah, was yeah. It- well, Mark actually married uh, my cousin, uh, Ashley Garris. No way. Yeah, wow. so it's a, a small world. It's kind of funny because I didn't know Mark. And we were at a party for the Fight Network. Um, and he comes over to me and he says, hey, you're Sean, right? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, I want you to meet somebody. So he pulls me over to, uh, you know, this blonde girl. And he introduced me to to uh, Ashley. And it's my cousin, Ashley Garris. So I've known Mark, Mark for ages, um, oh, wow. you know, uh, well, through the sport. Uh, but uh, never cornered him. I actually got him, my my personal trainer at the time, Brian Fletcher. Um, he did phenomenal work with me when I was training for the Olympic trials. Um, I offered uh, his services to Mark for couples fights, and he made some really good gains. But yeah, the the experience with the, the UFC was pretty cool. Um, you know, the, the Sky Dome, I got to watch uh, another a buddy of mine. Um, so my brother went to Oklahoma State, at the same time, this fellow by the name of Randy Couture went to Oklahoma State. Nice. I don't know if you know Randy. Oh, Randy yeah. heard his name once. <laughs> <laughs> well, Randy used to beat the the snot out of my older brother, so I kind of started. I had a liking for my for my for Randy, but we got to be friends, and uh, um, so I got to watch his last fight. Unfortunately, he lost lost it, but I got to see his teeth go flying. Oh, he lost a tooth too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was uh, there. Machida hit him with a sweet kick. That was insane. Yeah, that was too bad. But yeah, couldn't couldn't happen to a nicer guy though. Yeah. he was 
he's such a Randy's such a sweet guy, man, and his heart's in the right spot. So, but uh, I don't tell you the truth, I don't watch it anymore because um, I only watched it when there was guys that I that I that I knew. So you know, I, I knew like Randy Frank Trigg was my my brother's roommate. Uh, when he was down at Oklahoma, uh, Dan Henderson, somebody I, I, I knew as well as a friend. But as soon as those guys left, I kind of stopped. And then, you know, it got to be more showy where, you know, jerks like, uh, well, I won't say their names, but, you know, they just call they me Covington. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't care for that kind of thing. As a wrestler, it's always been, you know, prove yourself on the mat. And these guys, you know, shoot their mouths off. And, you know, a guy like Conor McGregor, he, he shoots his mouth off all he wants. Mm -hmm. But well, once he's up against the guy that, you know, Khalid, I that's his name. I didn't even want Khabib. Yeah. Yeah. He, that Dagestani wrestling. Because UFC, yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't, so you couldn't, the UFC couldn't protect them anymore. Yeah. You know, yeah. because that's what with their fighters as they protect them. I don't know if you guys remember, uh, there's a fellow by the name of Matt Lindland. He was a good friend of mine as, as well. So silver medalist at the uh, Crazy. 92 Olympics. And uh, he was supposed to fight a guy by the name of Frank uh, Rich Franklin. And yeah. I don't know if you, you kind of look like Jim Carrey. Yeah, yeah. And Rich, and he's a math teacher. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So <laughs> he was, Matt was the top, top, top um, contender like for the for the uh, the title but they wouldn't let the two fight because they knew that Matt would kick the snot out of them you know there was a pretty boy who could be the face of the UFC this this Rich Franklin or you could have my buddy <laughs> Matt who's not so pretty as as uh, <laughs> Rich so I mean that was you know for me that was kind of thing really you, you know you, you're around sports your entire life you see the best people you know win because of their talent the ufc is about entertainment more so than anything it's not about you know finding finding the toughest kid out there it's about finding the person that's going to make put people in the seats and i started to realize that and that's when i stopped watching it because i was like you know I don't, I don't need this crap before we head out here sean yeah we always ask all our guests to drop a positive message to the youth or something that you wish you knew growing up something that uh, that can stick with them what would you have to say to them right now uh, i've actually befriended the university of michigan's uh, former swim coach he, he's amazing um jim richardson but one thing he harps on on kids and you know you know we always talk to our kids we always you know are goal orientated we want them to do so well and something okay but way to go you you won this championship or way to go you did this on the math test we set you know bars for our kids to achieve and what ends up happening is you know they are afraid to fail we create this bar and then they don't want to perform or they don't want to, you know, they're scared to perform because they don't want to fail you. I think when, you know, what we need to do with is change our, our attitude. And it's all about effort and effort and attitude when it comes to coaching or to believing in, in, in yourself. You know, when you put an effort into things, things will happen. You know, don't worry about the outcome. The outcome will come eventually, you know, when, when you put in the effort and you actually put a, you know, a, a a cognitive effort when you're what I mean by that is when you start focusing on you know the skills or what you need to actually take you to the next level and it could be you know in life or it could be in sports what does it take me to get to the next level I have to kind of sit about and think about that so where do I have to put the effort one thing a day one thing a day my math test I'm going to study for my math test today right I'm going to work on this equation for today I'm going to work on this formula for today that's all it has to be. And it's just putting it We're so scared because we look at the big picture. We look at, I want to be an Olympic champion. I want to make the Olympic team. And then we never break it down to slow, slow things. And because we look at those big goals and our parents look at the big goals, we set those goals. We get scared of those goals. We're scared to fail. If you're just looking at putting an effort in one day at a time, improving yourself one day at a time, you know, you'll make the progress. You'll make, you'll make it closer to that goal. Um, that's my biggest thing that I, that I want people to kind of figure out for themselves because, you know, we put the limitations on ourselves, our mindset, you know, we think, Oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. Well, you can do it. You got to take, you know, how, how do you eat a cake? One bite at a time. Yeah. Right. That was an Olympian. Actually, I quote in the, uh, I would Olympian. Oh, I know. And I hope I said her last name. She says she's a wrestler that I, 
I did a podcast with, but that's what, that's what she said. It stuck with me one bite at a time. That's how you eat a cake. So why would you do anything else? You're not going to stuff your face with a cake, but the lasting effects of that, you know, is, is not, you're only going to taste it once, but if you keep on taking those bites and those bites, you get to taste it more and more, right? It's all about incremental success. Well, that's awesome. That's amazing. Detective Constable Sean Garris, uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for your service. And uh, we wish you nothing but success. And and thank you again. Well, thank Absolutely. you for having me. everything that you guys are doing, and you know, uh, reaching the kids and and, and uh, you know having them on your podcast, giving them a different perspective of what's going on or what what can happen for them. Uh, you guys are doing a great thing. So thank you so much for doing what you're doing because you know sometimes you know my voice isn't heard just because of my uniform, but your voices, you know. You reach it far more than I will, I, I think, because as soon as I turn up and tell them I'm a police officer, <laughs> 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 sometimes the bald head gets it away. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on and spending the night with us here. It's been an awesome conversation. Yep. Okay, well, let's see if the uh, 49ers are doing well now. Yeah, get to it. Okay, you guys take care. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. have a great night, Sean. Okay. Broken Home Podcast, second coolest show on the internet. Good night, everybody.